Hello and welcome to a new episode of Opposition Cast, and indeed a new year as uh, we enter 2021 and put behind us the misery uh, of 2020, or perhaps not, as we enter another lockdown here in the UK and face uh, growing numbers of cases of COVID-19. The situation really does feel pretty grim. But uh, if there are any upsides at all to the horrendous situation we still find ourselves in, it is perhaps that we may find ourselves with uh, even more time to listen to podcasts uh, like this one. And uh, I hope you might think about recommending us uh, to others who might find it of interest. We had a record number of people listening to our special Christmas episode with uh, Jackie Smith, the former Home Secretary, talking about her time as the government chief whip. Uh, other highlights you might want to listen back to, we had a uh, Churchill extravaganza where we looked at uh, Winston Churchill's time in the political wilderness before he became Prime Minister and also afterwards. Uh, lots of other interesting guests as well. You can uh, see our full list if you go and subscribe wherever it is that you get your podcasts from. Uh, Professor Lord Norton, the world's greatest expert on parliament spoke to us uh kath haddon from the institute for government we've spoken to baroness royal of blaisden the former labor leader of the house of lords uh, lots of exciting guests that we've had um, over the last few months and uh, some more to come in the new year but to begin with we've gone for something perhaps a little bit more light-hearted to ease us into 2021 and I was delighted to speak to Patrick Kidd of The Times newspaper. Patrick has written for The Times since 2001, uh, but since 2013 he has been the editor of something of a journalistic institution, uh, The Times Diary column, uh, which brings a bit of respite to the news. It's been described as the antidote to the news and uh, offers a mix of uh, humour, wit, anecdote and uh, poking gentle fun at politicians and public figures. And in addition to that, he was also, between 2015 and 2019, the Times's parliamentary sketch writer, where from his vantage point in the press gallery of the House of Commons, he was able to bring alive for the readers of the Times the dramas and personalities of the House of Commons in a suitably irreverent and humorous way, building on a noble tradition of parliamentary sketch writing uh, in British journalism. In some ways, it is perhaps the written form of the political cartoon, which has an even longer history of lampooning politicians. So that's really what I wanted to explore in my conversation with Patrick. Um, how important is it uh, to use humour to burst the bubble of politicians and to uh, keep their feet on the ground by reminding them that we can have a bit of a laugh at their expense. Uh, it is a form of dissent which is not always tolerated in more authoritarian regimes, and it is a mark of a free press, but also of a free society, that we are able to take the mick out of our politicians on a daily basis. And it's also, of course, important for all of us when we're reading uh, the misery that is often uh, spread across the news pages to be able to have a bit of light relief as well by uh, having a bit of humour there too. So that was the basis for our discussion uh, and uh, we began by talking about Patrick's role as the editor of the Times Diary and the fact that he is the longest serving incumbent in that role. 
Yes, this Christmas, I think I've, I've been past the record three years now. I think I broke the record about, about three years ago. Uh, I've been doing it for seven and a half years and hopefully bringing some enjoyment. I remember when I started doing the diary um, in 2013 and uh, one Tory backbencher, Bernard Jenkins, who I've known for many years, uh, said to me, you be as cutting as you want, but but don't be cruel. And I don't think that was just self-protection, but it's it's really important in humour that actually you don't stray over into bullying that actually you can expose weaknesses. Um, if someone is pompous or a liar or is dissembling, um, that's really crucial to go for them. But actually picking on people, pulling out sort of physical traits. Um, I, I sometimes was pulled up if I if I mock, say, Angela Rayner's accent, which probably was a bit undignified of me. Um, and I generally try not to be cruel. But there's, there's plenty of um, other ways that you can you can poke fun at people, and, and sometimes they really deserve it. And sometimes they love it. Jacob Rees-Mogg, and I've really made him into a, a caricature, both when I was doing the sketch and in, in the diary, um, just calling him The Mog. He, he loves having <laughs> the, the pee taken out of him. <laughs> and, and he plays Uttred, of course. So, you know, you can make jokes about him wanting to uh, get him, being a moderniser, he's, he's getting himself an, an electric penny farthing or something for Christmas. <laughs> um, and, and he's actually quite happy because, because he hands it up himself. Uh, the key thing is to look for those who are, who are really badly affected and depending whether they're vulnerable, you, you pull your punches a bit. But someone like, say, John Prescott, uh, he used to get really stung by, by criticism, but he also deserved it because he, he was a bit of a bully himself. And mm. so it was good to bring, in, bring him down a peg or two with you comments about two tags and two jabs when he was in and how important do you think it is for um, politicians to be brought down a peg or two? Um, you know, is, is, do you think that um, the the sketch writers' art and the diarists' um, art, in, in as far as it it, it, it does that, is um, is important? Is it is it like the uh, the guy who walked behind Roman emperors? Um, <laughs> I was going to make that very mortal. point. <laughs> yeah, remember you are mortal. I think so. Um, I, I do often feel quite sorry for the uh, politicians. Um, there's a wonderful line by Norman Shrapnel, former sketch writer of The Guardian, uh, who said that he never liked to meet politicians uh, because he thought it might dilute his hatred for them, uh, which I always think is rather <laughs> cruel, but I don't. There's very few MPs I, I hate, uh, plenty I feel sorry for. And I always used to see them instead of being my, my, my victims, I'd see them more as my exhibits. There's a word Peter, Peter <laughs> Hennessy often uses, the, the constitutional historian as a exhibit. Well, he's become um, an exhibit himself now. <laughs> well, he, he is, he's a very stately one. Um, but I think it's important for them to remind themselves that they are mortal and human and open to ridicule and not, not to get too big-headed. Um, but it's also important for our readers to, it, it adds a bit of colour. Politics can be very grey and dull. Maybe some people think it should be more grey and dull and, and we've, we focus on trivialities. But actually, if people understand the characters, they get more involved themselves. They And sometimes it can, it can really reveal a truth. So, you know, when Matthew Paris a predecessor described John Redwood as being like Mr. Spock in Star Trek. This wasn't just sort of being rude to him, but it actually revealed the the, the lack of emotion, which I think is a big failing of Redwood, the coldness. And, and people saw that themselves. So what Paris was sort of doing was actually, in a very colourful way, explaining uh, what people were already probably feeling about Redwood too. Mm. And we're doing what, what the Peter Brooks is and, and, and the, the other cartoonists do, just, just with words. It's... um. Uh, we're, we're looking for the warts and we're slightly making them bigger. Yeah. And and what is the history of, of parliamentary sketching? I mean, the, we, we've seen a, a huge decline in, in uh, parliamentary reporting over the years. There used to be pages and pages of it. 
but that was in an age before people would access it themselves. You know, you didn't have uh, online access to Hansard or the you know parliamentary channel, um, and so there was perhaps more of a justification for um, the Times and other broadsheets reproducing pages and pages of parliamentary oh, yeah, reporting. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, sketching presumably arose around sort of you know that kind of scale of coverage that it was a um, a sort of um, element of of that wider parliamentary coverage. Yeah, as we as we understand it to, today, it probably arose with the rise of satire in in, in the sixties um, and and the slight lack of deference. Um, mm. So the move from from straight to reporting around the time that the um, that the Times first uh, put news on the front page. You know, there's a focus in which was uh, May the third, nineteen sixty six. It was the first day that they had the Times Diaries. This is the very same day, and it was showed that that Britain perhaps was moving from its monochrome to its colourful in its news reporting too. Mm. And so we have people like Bernard Levin uh, writing sketches. Um, Frank Johnson uh, wrote, wrote for several places. Um, and then later, as we go into the, into the 80s and 90s, people like, like Matthew Paris. It's, um, I, I think, to some extent, the sketch has taken a lot of the space away from, from straight gallery reporting that, that people don't, unless it's a big debate, don't want to know what X said and Y said. They want mm. to know how they said it. Um, but in the same way, the satire wasn't invented in the 60s, um, sort of, colourful writing like this uh, has deep roots. We go right back to Suetonius, let's say, um, who, who was the first sort of um, biographer rather than historian. Mm. Um, they, they, they say that sort of journalism is the first draft of history. I think sort of sketch writing is the first draft of biography. Um, and so, yeah, we, we, we just want to, to, to make it more vibrant. And so um, what I particularly liked was, was looking at what the backbenchers are up to. So anyone can focus just on the big speakers at the dispatch box, X says and Y said. I love to see the reaction. And same way that you go to the theatre and you want to see what the third spear carrier is doing when uh, Coriolanus is, is making his switch. And so I loved watching people like Michael Ellis, MP for <laughs> Northampton South, I, th I think, one of the Northamptons. Um, who was one of the great lowers and mooers on the backbenches, who would always sort of bray and yeah, 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 and, and stuff like that. Um, and I, I, I referred to people like him as um, Toady, Lickspittle and Creep. Um, it's sometimes better just not to give them a name and to give them the characteristic, because they are part of the supporting character. You know if a politician is on the up, if he's getting Toady, Lickspittle and Creep shouting behind him and pointing their fingers. Mm. And also one of my favourite sketches, was watching um, Michael Ellis picking his nose very heavily during the debate, excavating like Schliemann at Troy, I said, almost <laughs> up to his armpit. Um, and then suddenly when a point was made, he sort of flung his finger out of his nostril and waggled it across at the Labour benches, flecking snot across the front. But, and uh, yeah, that's rather <laughs> disgusting, of course, but it also builds a character of, of how these backbenchers who are desperate for, for preferment can go from being slightly bored and disengaged and exploring their own recesses to suddenly feeling that they have to be the supporting chorus. Like the Greek choruses suddenly start saying, aye, 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 or whatever. <laughs> um, so I loved watching that. Conversely, when they're quiet, that can also be very revealing. And in the Jeremy Corbyn years, especially talking about the importance of humour for, for opposition, um, he couldn't get them laughing with him or at him even, um, <laughs> but he couldn't get about, he couldn't get noise. If you're a prime minister, it's very hard to be speaking into a wall of noise. Mm. And so Tony Blair as opposition leader, leader um, was very good at getting his backbenchers behind him. William Hague was actually very good, although it made no difference at the just, um, election box. 
um, but by being witty and warm, they're engaged. And normally they were catatonic behind Corbyn. Mm. Um, and I remember on one occasion seeing Clive Lewis, who, who had been a frontbencher, he's a backbencher this time, just sitting there reading a novel during the debate <laughs> while Corbyn was whispering away. Corbyn was so long-winded. I remember um, there was one debate. It was in response to the Queen's speech in 2017 where Jacob Rees-Mogg got up and made a point of order during Corbyn's speech because he said, Mr Speaker, the leader of the opposition said, and finally, ten minutes ago, was he misleading the House? <laughs> um, and, and so Corbyn had that now, if his and finalists went on for ten minutes. And I watched Clive Lewis reading this book, not engaged at all, and waited and waited to see what the book was, and he closed it, and it was a um, dystopian science fiction about how man had screwed up the planet so much they were going to go off for a new life. And that was something that was worth noting in the diary <laughs> the next day. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, and so it's quite a new form, really, sort of sketching. As you say, it's kind of, it, it came out of the... Um, the sort of revival of a new type of satire in the, in the 60s. Yes. Um, and, and that was the same time as the Times Diary um, appeared for the first time. Yes, yeah, 1960. We were quite late to diaries. Um, the Evening Standard, Londoner's Diary, had been going for 50 years by mm. the time the Times came along. But I think if you look at those pre-1966 um, Timeses, they're, they're very, you know, paper of record distinction and, and all that, but they're very dry, very densely typed. And then suddenly they thought perhaps Britain was changing, wanting to be a bit less deferential, a bit more colourful. Mm. Um, and so on the same day, they had a complete redesign. They put news on the front page, they brought in the diary, they, they sparkled up some of the opinion pages. And there was a column by the editor at the time, William Haley. Um, we wrote a leading article explaining the changes. And he said, there will be some readers who think we're only doing this to sell more copies. Well, of course we are. <laughs> 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 Which I thought, well, perhaps, you know, uh, we had an advertising slogan then, top people take the times. And of course, it's really important for us that, that we're read by mm. government secretaries and cabinet ministers and stuff. But actually, um, you know, it was a realisation that people in general were interested in, in the world. They just wanted it presented in a slightly more palatable form. And the sketch and the diary were part of that. Mm. It's perhaps a lesson that some politicians find it difficult to, uh, uh, to learn as well. Um, I remember Neil Kinnock talking about how he would be attacked for electionitis, uh, an unhealthy obsession with wanting to attract votes, which, as he, as he suggested, is if you're not in politics to uh, attract votes, what are you, are you doing it for? So um, I think that's possibly a, a similarity there. Um, and in terms of the, the, the diary, I think you've um, perhaps given more of a, a political edge to it. It's, it's had different sort of um, characters over the, over the years with um, a succession of um, different diary editors. Um, what do you think is a, a makes for a, a, a good mix of stories in the diary? There are different sorts of diaries, and, and I'm not going to obviously criticise rivals, but some are much more about society and celebrity. As, as one fellow diarist in another paper said, I like to see who's stepping out with who, which I really don't care about. I just like good stories. Um, and the Times Diary now is called um, TMS, which is sort of short for Times in text speak but also reflects the office we were in um, when we launched it, which was in Thomas More Square. And this was an echo back to the original Times Diary, which was called PHS, was Printing House Square. Mm. The reason I'm coming around to this is that many people will think TMS is Test Match Special. <laughs> and actually, I, I think my philosophy is similar to Test Match Special. Um, 
my diary. In, in the, Brian Johnson, the great master cricket commentator, said his job as a commentator was to actually just create a sort of a, a, a family circle of friends that they're there to commentate in the box on the cricket. But if one's got a good story or an anecdote or heard a decent joke, they share it with their audience as people do watching the game. And so that's what I try to do. I mean, I'm, I'm an assemblage of, of amusements. I, I'm there to, I'm the antidote to the news pages. Uh, mm. And so, you know, uh, if, if you hear it here, a good story, even a rather grey-whiskered story that's worth retelling, then, then I think that's um, that's just there to brighten up life. And of course, I, I picked, because I was in Westminster for several years, would pick up bits and pieces around there. Um, and people will come to me still with, with tidbits. I had one recently, uh, Sean Bailey, the, the Tory mayoral candidate in, in London, uh, had delivered cupcakes to the Westminster Press Gallery mm. uh, with political messages iced onto them. Um, but um, but there was no one there. There's, there's some crisis going on that means everyone's working from home again. That's not even noticed. And so they just piled up these cupcakes in the office. And one journalist, one of the few there, said, we have a huge mice problem already and, and complained to Sean saying, you've just exaggerated the, the rodent effect in Westminster. <laughs> so that was swiftly passed my way. And um, I, I think if I raise a chuckle or an eyebrow, that's that's my goal done. It's, it's, it's not heavy journalism. Um, but, you know, I'm very proud of the fact I was the first person in Fleet Street to mention the words Boaty McBoatface. <laughs> <laughs> I, I broke the news that Ed Miliband was the fourth most um, influential man in Doncaster. <laughs> <laughs> this was just before the general election in 2015. Do you, do you remember who the, who the, the top three were? <laughs> well, um, they, they didn't become prime minister either. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I have moles and... and readers and friends everywhere who send me tidbits and if it makes me chuckle a small one in today as we, as we speak uh the official charts compiler in britain has just um has just won the right to compile le hit parade francais and so <laughs> no matter how badly brexit might go um and we're all focused on fish and stuff we're going to be compiling the french um charts next year so. <laughs> um, I, that's I, what you call soft power i think exactly johnny halliday can come back <laughs> And um, between those, the, you know, those those two experiences of, of um, sketching, which uh, I think it's fair to say you were an, an acclaimed parliamentary sketch writer, and um, uh, and uh, many of us hope that you will return to it. And and also on on the diaries, you say it's it's taking a, a sort of different look at at the news and and, and at politics, um, but it does kind of illuminate a sort of a a broader picture. And there is, as you say, stories like. You know, Ed Miliband is the fourth most influential person in his own constituency. It kind of speaks to a sort of wider truth about how he's perceived. Um, and as you were talking about the sketch, you know, it, it does sort of have a wider resonance. I mean, well, someone like you... John Crace, I was going to say, uh, coined Maybot for Theresa May. Yeah. Um, and it really did uh, it was a brilliant way of, of exemplifying her robotic awkwardness. Mm. It's, it's almost, I was going to say, sort of the equivalent of. Um, sort of memes on social media you know you sort of you get a um, a funny clip it gets much more coverage it gets shared and becomes viral much more than any sort of serious news report and the same with sort of you know interesting or quirky or funny stories you know these things and and throughout history you know um whether it's sort of jokes being passed on to people you know humor and um sort of irreverence does sort of hit home in a way that hard news doesn't doesn't it so yeah. so perhaps it, it is the more important part of um of forming a a view of somebody you know you can be you you can be hated but respected in in, in the way many politicians are 
but what's what's fatal to them is is being laughed at. Yes, and then this uh, we, we talked about the Roman emperors. When once the Colosseum mm. starts laughing at an emperor, uh, or you know, once Nikolai Ceausescu starts being jeered at in the street, you know, the, you can see the grip on power going. Um, we're being very classical today, Jacob. Bismarck would be quite happy. With um, <laughs> the, 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 I mentioned Suetonius, and there, there's a line in that with the emperor um, Tiberius where he says, Uderint uh, dum probent, which is, let them hate me as long as they approve of me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is a very highbrow episode, this. Um, it, it, I, I'm, I'm nodding along from my um, comprehensive <laughs> education. Um. <laughs> it, 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 it is a truth that the politicians, um, as long as they get the public approval, I mean, Margaret Thatcher wasn't worried about being hated as long as she was winning elections. I think Boris Johnson's biggest fear is he want, wants to be loved a bit too much. He has obviously just won a big election a year ago, but um, perhaps that sort of takes sight of the edge of him, that he, he does care about whether they, they, they hate him. Mm. Um, but also sometimes our job is just to reveal the truth with a little bon mot. Occasionally a good line comes to mind in a way that a straight news reporter can't slip him. In September, I found out that the plan to get the theatres open for Christmas was going to be called Operation Sleeping Beauty. And I just flippantly wrote that it was an ironic choice of name because in Sleeping Beauty, it takes one careless prick for the whole place to be shut down for a hundred years. <laughs> <laughs> and here we are with the theatres closed because of well, more than one careless prick. And, um, <laughs> and you know, I, I have that license to be, to be flippant, um, but flippancy sometimes can be quite devastating, much more than a sort of a, a heavily sourced uh, news piece. Mm. And in terms of looking at sort of um, leaders of the opposition who've been sort of quite unsuccessful, it is quite notable that they're perhaps more remembered for some of the um, caricatures and some of the um, humorous um, stories that, than they are for, for their policy. So I, I did a, an experiment sort of before writing a, a paper on William Hague a few years ago, um, where I think I just put out on social media, what, what, what do you think of when you think of William Hague as leader of the opposition? And there were two things that came back from, from that. The first was the ludicrous 14 pints claim was what one person said and of course the baseball cap um everyone commented on the baseball cap and those are the two things similarly i would imagine ed Miliband, it's bacon sandwich um or it's um the edstone and it's it's quite notable how leaders of the opposition who've been unsuccessful primarily it's because people haven't been able to see them as prime ministerial or they haven't seen them as a credible candidate and it's these sort of funny anecdotes and you know we're looking in terms of William Hague at sort of 20 years sort of on and and these are st still things that pe people sort of have lodged in their mind about them do you think that's that, that that's that's true that these things will will endure and and shape people's view of these these leaders and and, and what do you think have been the abiding sort of images so far of uh, of Keir Starmer and Corbyn is probably easier yeah I feel sorry for William Hague because I think he became leader of the opposition at the wrong time for him. I was told by someone who was with him on election night in 97 as cabinet minister after cabinet minister fell. Was it nine, I think, in the end, mm. um, lost. That's it. And they said to Hague, well, you know, you're going to have to stand for leader. And apparently he went pale on that point because he'd not been in the cabinet very long. And he had strengths. He was a, a good foreign secretary, um, but he was almost in his desperation to get a reputation. He said he put on the cap with Hague on. Um, and, and he gave gifts to uh, to sketch writers, to cartoonists, and suddenly that became his image. Um, 
Ed Miliband, not just the bacon sandwich, but do you remember Peter Brooks um, just always did him as um, Wallace, as in the Wallace and Gromit mm. cartoons? And so once people start thinking that you're not a prime minister, then, then you're gone. Uh, and David Cameron, despite, you know, again, many caricaturable facets, people would make him with polished skin, mm. or sometimes would make him look very phallic, almost the way they, they drew him. Um, he's, he rose above that. And maybe it was just because it was his time. It was time for a changeover. Um, after all, Tony Blair wasn't badly damaged by being portrayed as Bambi. But because, mm. again, it was, it was time for, for a change of party. But you, <laughs> the important thing is, is to get noticed without being ridiculed. And Boris Johnson is one of the few who's managed to do both. Mm. He, he's won power purely by being a caricature. You know, his, his trademark hair since, since university days. He's bumbling. Is, the persona is there. He has deliberately sought to look foolish, getting caught on a zip wire. And yet, mm. for some reason, people have identified with him in a way they didn't identify with William Hague wearing a baseball cap to go on a log for him. I don't know. Um, but the danger is that you go too far the other way and you can be dull. And Jeremy Corbyn was, he, he was over-earnest. He was petulant. He was long-winded. I mean, being long-winded is a big sin in politics, I think. The hmm. 10 minute and finally. I remember one of his conference speeches, and I wrote in my sketch that the first 20 minutes was actually rather good. It was the next 50. But, um, <laughs> uh, 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 one point, this was his keynote speech, and at one point, Tom Peck from The Independent next to me said, Why is he talking about the Congo? <laughs> <laughs> um, and he, he never learned the art of actually getting his message across sharply. Whether Keir Starmer will, I don't know. He. Um, He's lucky in that he's so different from Boris Johnson that it's during a time of crisis when perhaps people will want a serious sombre politician. Mm. But I worry he is a bit too too flat and hard to love. He's got to work on his warmth. I, I did a diary story on this earlier in the week that The Spectator magazine is selling chocolates for Christmas to subscribers. And the range is um, the Queen's high tea, Boris's eaten mess, Trump's bitter orange and Keir Starmer's plain. Um, and, and the caricature <laughs> on the front done by Walter Moreland is of a two-dimensional Keir Starmer. Mm. And so there is that worry that he is, that when people look at him, they, they don't think he's, a, he's a, a loser in the way that perhaps they did with their Miliband, but they don't necessarily know anything about him. Mm. His greatest strength, though, is time, of course. And yes, well, I was going to say, it's sort of perhaps better to be a blank canvas at this point than have people having defined you already. I think that's probably... The, the, the fatal thing is that if you're defined early by your opponents and by your caricature, it's very difficult to shake that off in the years that, that follow. Yes, I mean, David Cameron, bear in mind, had um, five years for mm. people to get to know him as leader of the opposition. Um, Tony Blair had, had, had three years. Um, and, and already John Smith had started the Blair project, actually. by, by um, To go back to talking about humour, Smith was very good at poking and pricking John Major and... Uh, mm. Uh, worked out that the major was very thin-skinned and so could get under that. And so Blair was just continuing that tactic. I remember John Smith um, made a really good speech in response to the, the Queen's speech, I think, one year. And it was the year that sort of, that. Uh, well, <laughs> we might look back now with um, fondness, but it was a year when various sort of things kept going wrong. If we were to offer this tale of events to the BBC Light Entertainment Department <laughs> as a script for a programme, I think the producers of Yes Minister would have turned it down as hopelessly <laughs> over the top. I think it might have even been too much for some mothers do have them. 
The man with the non-Midas touch is in charge. <laughs> no wonder we live in a country where the Grand National doesn't start a new town. <laughs> Well, the Grand National doesn't start and hotels fall into the sea. It was a brilliant sort of encapsulation of this kind of yeah. um, chaotic sort of country. So he was he was quite a good humorist. But it's, as you say, that's not always enough. I mean, William Hague was pretty good at the dispatch box. It didn't do I him any good. Think, I don't think any Tory leader would have done well in 1970, 2001. Mm. Um, and um, partly because Blair was so different and fresh and the country changed. The death of Diana and things like that exposed us as a very different country. So perhaps... Um, what well, the Conservatives were used to dealing with. But Haig was funny. I mean, Haig at least brightened up. But the one thing he did is he kept his party going because they wanted to come to PMQs. They knew it would be um, a destination, a, a, a treat. And I mean, some of his reposts, there was the one about the, the new president of the European Union. And there was some talk that, um, that, that Tony Blair might get it. Well, and wasn't that a return performance? That was him, that was him as um, Shadow Foreign Secretary, I think. Um, okay, I right. think so. Yes, it was the time. Of the, so it was um, when he came back as Shadow Foreign Secretary, and it was um, sort of this this return to the the dispatch box. And it is, of course, rumoured that one Tony Blair may now be interested in the job. Now, if that makes us uncomfortable on these benches, just imagine how it is viewed in Downing Street. <laughs> and I. And we can all picture the scene at a European Council sometime next year. Picture the face of our poor Prime Minister as the name of Blair is placed in nomination by one President and Prime Minister after another. The look of utter gloom on his face. The nauseating, glutinous praise oozing from every head of government. The rapid revelation of a majority view agreed behind closed doors when he was, as usual, excluded. Never would he regret more no longer being in possession of a veto. The famous... <laughs> the famous drop jaw almost hitting the table as he realises there is no option but to join in. And then the awful moment when the motorcade of the President of Europe sweeps into Downing Street. The gritted teeth and bitten nails. The Prime Minister emerging from his door with a smile of intolerable anguish. <laughs> the choking sensation as the words Mr. President are forced out of his mouth. And then, then once in the cabinet room, the melodrama of when will you hand over to me all over again. <laughs> And um, he didn't disappoint. I think you know, he'd had yeah. he'd had several years to kind of prepare for the, the sort of moments and, and deliver that brilliant, brilliant speech. But there are some speakers. You see the enunciators all around Parliament, mm. and, and there are some people when you see their name, you dash to the chamber, whether you're mm. your press or, or, or an MP, because you know if Michael Gove is speaking, or, or Chris Bryant, or uh, or Hilary Benn for slightly different reasons, it's it's going to be good theatre, and and we. Some people criticise us for, for thinking about Parliament as theatre, but it is important to think of it as that. That it, if if it's dry and entertaining and no one's engaged and they're reading books like Clive Lewis, then it gives the impression that it doesn't matter to the people watching on television as well. Um, so I would always, uh, I mean, Gove is, is a prime example. He is the best by far of the current Conservative MPs, and I remember him giving two speeches in succession. Um, in the same week, one on Brexit and one on the vote of no confidence. 
uh, in May's government. And the fact he'd been asked to sum it up rather than the Prime Minister herself, I think, told you everything about her. Uh, she wanted to send them skipping into the lobbies to vote for her, and she realised she couldn't do that. And, and Gove just gave a brilliant speech. It was colourful. It was it was bombastic. It it turned the occasion not into a vote of confidence on the government, but a vote of confidence on the opposition. Contrast. While we are standing up for national security, what about the right honourable gentleman, yeah. the member for Islington North? He wants to leave NATO. He wants to get rid of our nuclear deterrent. And recently in a speech he said, why do countries boast about the size of their armies? That is quite wrong. Why don't we emulate Costa Rica that has no army at all? No allies, no deterrent, no army, no way can this country ever allow that man to be our Prime Minister in charge of national security. And, and I, there's a real art to that. And then, as I said, a few days earlier, he'd given the speech on Brexit, and he spoke for an hour and a half, taking interventions with a tiny pile of A5 notes in front of him that he turned over sort of once every 15 minutes. Uh, and it was, also, it was an extemporised speech. And I just, I admire someone like that, but also MPs want to watch that. Mm. Uh, and then suddenly it becomes relevant again. Yes. Well, it, is, it does make the point, though, doesn't it? I think that, um, as you say, performance in the chamber as a theatrical performance doesn't always... Uh, link itself to success politically. I, I, I think when you said that about Michael Gove's um, speech in the No Confidence debate, um, I mean, famously, Michael Foote made a brilliant speech in in uh, closing the vote of no confidence in the Callaghan government. And you know, not only did that vote not go well and the election not go well, but his leadership subsequently of the Labour Party didn't go terribly well. Uh, and uh, what the right honourable lady has done, and I've seen it, marked it myself, what she is doing today is uh, leading her troops into battle, snugly concealed behind a Scottish nationalist shield with the boy David holding her hand. <laughs> Perhaps I could say to the Right Honourable Lady, I'm even more concerned about the fate of the Right Honourable Gentleman than about her. Uh, she can look after herself. <laughs> but uh, here the leader of the Liberal Party, uh, yeah, I say this in the utmost affection, but he's... Uh, <laughs> He's, uh, he's passed from rising hope to elder statesman without any intervening period whatsoever. Um, but that was renowned as being a, you know, a, a tour de force when he summed up at the end of that debate. It's a yes, similar it's a, sort of thing. No, that's true. And, and we were talking about how I tried to make my diary like cricket commentary. And I think there are, there are cricketers who are bar emptiers and cricketers who are bar fillers. And if, say, a Kevin Peterson or someone is at the wicket or an Ian Botham in the past, people will come out and watch. But making a sort of a flamboyant 50 doesn't necessarily win you the match. Um, but nonetheless, it gets people engaged. Um, but, you know, it, it was no um, no surprise that Theresa May's favourite cricketer was Geoffrey Boycott, one of the dullest grinding accumulators, selfish, uh, out for himself. And his lack of zing um, was was very much reflected by Theresa May. Mm. So just going back to your your sketching, you, you mentioned some of them, but who, who have been, been your favourites to, to sketch over the years? I think I liked those characters I made my own. So I am very fond of Jacob Rees-Mogg. Um, I know there's probably people who hate him, but uh, he's just very, he's very charming. He is he's a caricature that you can then caricature some more. Um, and uh, I remember bumping into him in the corridor when they were voting on Theresa May's future, when, when the letters had all been handed into Graham Brady. And 
Oh, that's it. No, he, he told me he was off to Westminster Cathedral before he voted. And I said, you're going to go and pray for the soul of the Conservative Party. So no, not for its soul. Not yet, anyway. <laughs> um, I loved Geoffrey Cox. Now, he was one of my heroes. The Conservative Party conference, uh, when he was the warm-up act for Theresa May, and none of us knew. We, we knew there would be a special guest. And when they suddenly um, announced Geoffrey Cox, there was a, well, I don't think any of us had heard him speak. And he walked out and began by saying, it's so lovely to see such a big crowd here for the Attorney General's speech. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's got that rich, wonderful, honeyed voice, and he launched into Milton, and methinks I see a noble and puissant nation. Methinks I see in my mind a noble and puissant nation, rousing herself like a strong man after sleep, and shaking her invincible locks. <laughs> Methinks I see her as an eagle, mewing her mighty youth, and kindling her undazzled eyes at the full midday beam. Ladies and gentlemen, let us seize that prize. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it was just gorgeous. I mean, completely overshadowed Theresa May. But <laughs> um, I love people who make me want to listen, and so on, on the Labour side, I, I think the puckish Chris Bryant, who probably would have been a wonderful vicar to, to go to his sermon, he's mischievous. Uh, further to the question, oh, sorry, Mr Speaker, may I first of all wish you uh, a happy Kiss of Ginger Day. Um, the, um, the, the member for North Antrim quite rightly asked the question. I'm sure you can look it up. Um, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Speaker, the... He'd have been a great speaker, actually. I'm a, I'm a fan of Lindsay Hoyle, but I think Brian would have been a very good speaker. Um, and, and there are others. I mean, Angela Eagle was somebody you would always go, go and listen to. For slightly different... She was a needless, a bit of a street fighter. And given that the former Work and Pension Secretary has just called the Prime Minister disingenuous, and the former Tory Mayor of London has called him demented, I wouldn't talk about Labour splits. If I were him, I'd get his own house in order before he talks about us. And then you've got ones who came into their own too late. So I started doing the sketch after the 2015 election. Um, and so one of the first things I did was the Labour leadership contest. And Yvette Cooper was as bland as you could be doing that. And I did one sketch of a debate between the four candidates in which I would quote, Hugh Corbyn said this, and Liz Kendall said that, and Andy Burnham said that. And every time I came to Yvette Cooper, I just said, Yvette Cooper said, open quotes, dot, 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 close quotes. Just because, <laughs> to make the point that she said absolutely nothing memorable. And so mm. about various points. Um, and I mean, it was just a device to, to, to make the point. And yet suddenly, when she became chairman of the Home Affairs Committee, um, she became very, very good. Um, and perhaps it's because she had a, a proper enemy to fight against in, in not only Theresa May, but issues like immigration. Prime Minister, you're uh, refusing to answer my questions and you uh, seem to have a certain tone of contempt towards having a figure as a target. However, you've chosen to have a figure, a net migration target for the whole of immigration and you've chosen to stick with it uh, rather than to change it when you became Prime Minister. So let me ask you again, just in terms of meeting the net migration target, how are you expecting to meet your net migration target if you have no way to reduce the non-EU net migration and you're refusing to say what your plans are for EU migration? She became must-watch telly, and th there's not enough of those. So I enjoy that. And then I also, as I said, the toady licks, petals and creeps. I love it. 
poor old Alan Mack, I've probably killed his career because I, I pointed out how often he asked very sycophantic questions. And then I, then I saw this appeared in Wikipedia that he was noted for his sycophancy. Um, it's, it, I, I, I loathe that the sort of MP that bounces up and asks a planted question about, does the Prime Minister agree with me that he's doing a wonderful job? Oh, yes, I am. Thank you very much for noticing. So people like that, I think, are, are well worth... And do you think the, politi- the, the, the minister themselves, the prime minister, thinks that's a pretty pathetic thing for them to do as well? I often wonder that, you know, these, these people clearly think it's doing their career some good to read out a whip's question in quite that sort of toadying way. And I always think that the prime minister must sort of groan slightly when they hear that because it just, it just sounds so dreadful. Yeah, it does. It does. They, yeah, they, they want support, but they, mu- they must wonder, do you have any self, self-dignity? Uh, and then, of course, we've only really talked about the two main parties, but a lot of the Scottish National Party were, were good characters. Ian Blackford, who, who always looks like he should be a butcher. He's got that sort of ruddy uh, uh, confidence. I remember him being chucked out by John Burko for, for not sitting down when he was told to shut up. And the MPs from Scotland were not given the courtesy of even debating it last night. It is a democratic outrage. The people of Scotland will not be disrespected by this parliament. I, I enjoyed watching people like that. But it's the characters. It's the ones who've got a bit of zip about them. Uh, and some of them are not household names at all. The other thing is, I also, I liked to give out five-star reviews. So sometimes you give a slamming. But occasionally, if a backbencher's given a really good speech. And one of the finest I saw was um, an MP called Trudy Harrison, um, MP for Copeland, who, who won a by-election in February 2017. First time the Tories have won the seat for 80 odd years. And she didn't deliver a maiden speech for a couple of months until suddenly Theresa May called an election. And it looked like she might go through her entire parliamentary career without speaking. <laughs> Just uh, like the old days. <laughs> well, as, as I said, it was, it was like um, Isaac Newton, who was an MP for two years and did yes, a task if someone could shut the window. Um, <laughs> and so she finally made it. And it was brilliant. And it was warm and it was witty. It, it was very generous towards her Labour opponents she'd beaten. Firstly, I would like to pay tribute to my predecessor, Jamie Reid, who was the member for Copeland from 2005 until he stood down in January this year. It is in fact Jamie who I have to thank for inspiring my introduction to politics. The very first parliamentary debate I ever watched was a Westminster Hall debate called upon by Jamie and also attended by other Cumbrian members. I saw the positive impact that MPs in Westminster could have on their local communities and the powerful influence that their support can play, even in remote areas, which I had previously felt would never be anyone's political priority. Positive action, listening to concerns, tackling the problems head on, working with the can-do people in our community who really care, has for many years been my mantra. I will continue to strive enthusiastically forward, because I believe passionately in Copeland, its people and its potential. And so I just did a sketch of a sort of five-star theatre review and said that it was, if this was a swan song, famously swans sing just before they die, then it was a beautiful song. And I just thought, well, if this is how you're going to go out, then you deserve praise for it. Of course, she did in one election and has done absolutely nothing since. <laughs> and is that one in... GPS for the Prime Minister, but... Is, is that one in the book, he says, um, allowing an opportunity for a plug? It is one of the, the most well-thumbed pages um, in my book, the, the Week or a Long Time in Politics, which is a collection of my four years of sketching. Um, and uh, yeah, because I've done a few speaking events in the days before COVID, and I just like reading out 
the treaty house and one because it I don't always want to beat up politicians. That's the key. And that actually, I, a bit like theatre critics want to go to the theatre seeing a good production. And if they don't, they're going to write a stinker of a review. But actually, I think a lot of critics want to be entertained. Mm. Um, I did too. There were some very odd... I'm mean, like, There's all sorts of moments come to mind suddenly. Perhaps the oddest, though, was um, Jeremy Corbyn and UB40. And this was at the time of the, uh, the Labour leadership contest against Owen Smith. Is that his name? <laughs> <laughs> How easily we forget His, history records that it was, yes. But poor yeah. um, old Owen Smith is just vanished. But anyway, there was a leadership contest in 2016, and um, in order to show party unity, Jeremy Corbyn did a press conference with half of UB40. And the reason it was only half is because they'd had a bitter um, schism, and half of them weren't speaking to the other half, which seemed a very odd analogy to <laughs> to, to portray to us. And it was to talk about Corbyn's support for the arts. And uh, he began by turning to Mr. UB40, and his first question was, tell me, do you like classical music? And Mr. UB40 looked rather bewildered and said, uh, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> it was like no one knew why they were there. So, I mean, that was quite a fun, odd thing to sketch. Not, not quite um, Neil Kinnock and Tracy Ullman, but sort of <laughs> politicians and, and, and pop stars never really um, go well together. It never ends well, does it? No, indeed. Um we did once have the Osmonds in the gallery at the, at, at, um, for PMQs, which was also rather odd. John Burko, who, unlike other speakers, was quite keen on pointing out guests, would say, then we have the Osmonds with us today. And not Donnie, unfortunately, who was presumably watching the House of Lords that day, but um, Jay and Merrill. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you, your, your, your book, as you say, The, the Week of Long Time Politics, covers the sketch, uh, sketches from the Brexit Neverendum, is the subtitle. And um, I think we, when you look at the four years, we might have thought that was the sort of high point of turmoil and, and drama in, uh, in, in modern politics and current affairs. And then, and then 2020 happened. I mean, it's, it, it, does, it does seem that we've, we've been going through an extraordinary sort of time for sort of politics and news. And do you think that makes the, the value of uh, things like the diary and, and, and sketches much more important to get people through these really quite tough and uh, divisive times? To, to be able to have sort of some light relief and um, poking fun at people actually just just helps a bit during these sorts of times. I hope so. I, I used the word a little while ago, antidote, which um, I believe the diary is the, 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 the antidote to the news pages in the same way that, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue, it's referred to as the antidote to panel games. There's, there's an awful lot of grimness, written brilliantly by my colleagues, of course. I, I should praise our science editor for, for the massive amounts of expert misery he brings us every day um but then they get to page 15 or wherever i am and this is something that makes makes you smile and that that's my goal is to just sort of be reassuring that it's not totally rubbish um and that uh we are going to get through this with, with a bit of laughter and, and a bit of uh, companionship and I, I think that's really important and similarly i like the cartoon on the on the op-ed page it, it just makes people stop smile and think okay well life's not too bad Patrick Kidd there at the end of our conversation, reflecting on the vital role that uh, humour and laughter plays in helping us all to cope in dark times. And I think that's something we can all very much agree with at the moment. And if you want to read more of Patrick's work as uh, The Times' sketch writer between 2015 and 2019, uh, you can uh, buy the book, which he mentioned there, The Week Are a Long Time in Politics, Sketches from the Brexit Neverendum, published by Biteback Books in 2019, and I highly recommend 
that. Uh, he's also published an anthology of uh, 50 Years of the Times Diary, uh, which was published by Times Books in 2016, uh, entitled Diary at 50, The Antidote to the News. And again, lots of uh, witty and amusing anecdotes and uh, stories in there from the Times Diary. And of course, you can read the Times Diary every day uh, in the Times. And that's really all we've got time for in this episode of the podcast. Um, I always say that as though we've got a limited amount of time. Of course, the length of these podcasts uh, <laughs> increases and reduces. So, I mean, I could go on for as long as I really wanted to. Uh, what I actually mean is uh, that's all we've got for you in this podcast. Um, that's it. Uh, it's the end. So uh, thanks very much for joining us. If you haven't already, then please do subscribe by clicking subscribe wherever it is that you get the podcast from. Uh, spread the word to other people who might uh, want to listen to them. And uh, if you haven't listened to the previous episodes, uh, I see our, our listener numbers have been going up every episode, so there are some of you who won't have listened to the previous ones. Do please go back and listen to some of those. Uh, particularly at the moment, uh, the ones on the United States, I think, are probably particularly pertinent at the moment, and we might re revisit that issue I think, in the, the weeks ahead. Uh, but for the moment, thanks very much indeed for joining me. Do look after yourselves, and I'll see you again soon. Opposition Cast is produced by the Centre for Opposition Studies and presented by me, Nigel Fletcher. Do please subscribe and listen to our other episodes wherever you get your podcasts from. Sleeping Beauty, it takes one careless prick for the whole place to be shut down for a hundred years. <laughs> <laughs>